Hello and welcome to Rationally Writing. I'm Daystar Eld. And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 22, Social Systems in World Building. Yeah, World Building for Social Systems, part two, bottom up. So, last time we talked about top-down world building, which is basically when you go into fiction with an idea of what you want to write about socially or politically and kind of just construct the society or construct the magic system or whatever that will allow you to write the stand-in or just directly address the issue that you want to address with the speculative fiction world that you're writing. What's bottom-up about? Bottom-up is basically, and you know, there's there's some amount of meeting in the middle between these two, but bottom-up is where you just take a rule and insert it into a world and then you you see what happens from there. Sam Hughes, who did uh, Raw and Fine Structure, he does this kind of writing a lot. I think it's very common in in rational fiction. Brandon Sanderson does a fair amount of it. I think it, it comes fairly naturally to people who do a lot of hard fantasy or hard sci-fi, right? You, you introduce a, a teleporter or a teleportation device into the world, and then you say, okay, what happens from there? Rather than saying, okay, I want to talk about globalism. Let me thereby invent a teleporter that's going to be used to to talk about that. Yep. And uh, like you said, there's some middle ground. Like you might you might go into a story with some vague idea of what you what things you want to address, and then as you construct the world and its premise and the thing the societies and th- technology and stuff in it, come about different uh, issues that are related to it. Yeah, and I think for bottom up world building, a lot of times you will invent something and you will think, okay, how do people react to this thing? And you'll hopefully do your research and come across uh, some examples in the real world from from different cultures or different organizations or things like that. Yeah. So do you think it would be wrong for me to say just from the outset that it seems to me like bottom-up is just the better way to go overall? You know, obviously a badly done bottom-up versus a well-done top-down might be a different story, but if you're assuming the same skill by the writers, I don't know, it seems like bottom-up is going to be less likely to fall into traps of heavy-handedness and oversimplifying and things like that. Yeah, I think they're just so they're so different from each other in terms of especially how the author approaches it. Because for top-down world-building, a lot of the time, you really care about that thing, right? And I think that if you really, really care about income inequality or the dangers of capitalism or something, then you're more inclined to be able to write a good story about that thing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're going in with this message in your head that you want to convey to the reader. And I think that can be very strong rather than you create your rule for your world. Like people can you know, swap minds with each other and then you decide, okay, like an interesting thing about that is body dysmorphia. But you don't actually care that much about body dysmorphia, right? And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't bring that same passion to it or expertise or something like that yeah i definitely tend toward bottom-up world building the kind of fiction i enjoy tends toward it but i don't i'm very hesitant to say that it is on average better right no that makes sense i can see that because it's that's similar to a the idea that oh actually i won't go into that because it might be too political yeah well i I think one of the things is that um if done properly it can Mm -hmm. be kind of hard to tell which which, which ones which, right? You, you want to use them in synthesis, but I think that um, you tend to do more discovery in bottom-up, which I like as both a writer and a reader. Mm-hmm. There's also the idea of the bottom-up conflicts being driven by the plot, whereas the top-down conflicts being driven by, I would say, like, conflicts in our world, more or less. Yeah. 
so you you tend you tend to see a lot of conflicts in in top down stories that are basically written out usually unfinished in our world like a lot of social issues that don't really have a conclusion and are still kind of being fought in the hearts and minds of of readers everywhere so you might be more likely to run afoul the whole like well this is pushing a thing that I don't really agree with or not but that's again comes down to the skill of the writer yeah and the thing about bottom up world building is you I wouldn't say that you get into but you can get into such unique spaces where there's no there's no defined argument that that you're looking at right mm-hmm. like if there is to just throw a rule out there if there's a machine that lets people clone themselves like once per year or something or some magic item or whatever you get into areas of personal identity and like the concept of ownership under such a system and personal autonomy and stuff like that that are not just you know uns- philosophically unsolved but then suddenly become practical things and you can place people on either side of whatever conflicts develop out of that and it'll be totally new right and especially because a lot of the problems that you can't really deal with or they're they're highly hypothetical in our world can be explored in in speculative fiction which means that you'll come across plots that you can draw analogies to our world, but there is no actual real-world situation of that kind of being fought out. Yeah. And I think I think that you do want to draw on the real world because a, a lot of the conflicts that, that people have are just sort of emergent. Like, you introduce these rules, but they will end up having conflicts that are similar to real-world rules about, like, gender roles, Right a lot of the social stuff that we have or like in the medieval era comes out of power differentials. And so you can, you know, if, if you say uh, like a 10th of people are born with telekinetic powers or whatever, you might look to a system like, like medieval succession rules or the sort of power dynamics of gender and map that onto how the, telekinetic master race sort of deals with their inferiors yeah tribalism is, is ingrained in human nature you can really write almost any kind of story that has differences between people and and through that story explore even if it's lately explore like how tribalism manifests in it there's the sequel series of avatar the last airbender the first season dealt with the whole bender versus non-bender divide which was fantastic it was similar to a lot of like X-Men kind of ideas and and things like that of like, you know, what do you do as a normal person in a world full of superpowered beings, basically? And they didn't quite go as into it as I would have liked, but... I I was just about to say... Yeah. I was just about to say that because they don't... Spoilers for season, what is it, two or three? The plot basically gets hastily wrapped up by the end of season one, and then, like, they move on to other things in, like, season two and three. I just, I felt like they didn't... They had this real serious problem that didn't have a clean solution. Uh-huh. Sort of they invented a clean a clean solution for it. Yeah, but but they sort of wrapped it up as though that just ended the problems. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, well, the leader was a hypocrite, so I guess all the people's grievances are just gone now. Yeah. Which I, th- you're writing a TV series and you want to wrap up a season one arc. Right. I I get why they did it, but. It was one of those, you can't just end the season on, well, that problem's kind of intractable, huh? (laughs) 
I, I would have I would have been super happy if all the seasons of of the of the second series just dealt with that theme. But obviously they had other things in mind that they wanted to deal with too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the the idea of like taking any kind of world and and exploring these social issues that are going to come up from it is really it 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 kind of allows you to generate conflicts once you have the setting in mind. So if you have a, a story that has a plot and uh, you know what that plot's going to be and you're just kind of writing you know, the plot out and you're exploring the world as you do so and every so often you come up with these ideas for the world. They don't really come center of attention but they're just kind of on the outskirts. Like you just, You're aware that they're part of the world. Sometimes maybe a character or two will, will talk about them briefly but that's about it. If you ever, when you're looking for what to write next in the world, it's easier to come up with plots because you've got the setting and you just kind of look for the conflicts that would naturally arise as a result of, of whatever strange rules you have in that world, if it's magic-based or whatever technological gaps there might be or changes that technology will, will impress upon society. Yeah. So one of the people who does that really well is Sam Hughes, who runs a QNTM, which has raw and fine structure. But a lot of his stories are sort of one-shot centered around some central idea. But he also has this this time travel series that it's sort of a his ways of looking at time travel. It's, it's nonfiction. It's mostly commentary, I guess. But this idea that there is a natural story that is sort of embedded in any premise, I guess. And I love that. That's how I look at, at stories. And that's that tends to be how I look at premises, right? If someone gives a pitch to you, you, you want to start thinking about what are the natural stories, right? Mm-hmm. In so like Shadows of the Limelight is mostly bottom up or was built mostly bottom up because it's you know fame gives people powers that was the starting point for it and then all the narrative kind of implications of that and the meta awareness of how people could manipulate that was kind of arisen from it I guess yeah I've been writing more of that lately more Shadows of the Limelight stuff but um a lot of a lot of what comes out of you know fame gives people powers, then obviously there's going to be conflict over who gets to be the most famous, right? Mm -hmm. It's a limited resource. Att yeah. Attention is a limited resource, yeah. And so you, all of your stories can sort of come out of that, and that's you're constraining yourself in, in one sense when you add in these rules to your world. Well, if you do it correctly, you're constraining yourself. Mm -hmm. right? But it gives you such clean lines to follow, the, the places where you can divide people or divide things, I guess. Yeah, that, that is one of the things I want to say, though, is uh, you can do adding rules to the world poorly. You can do bottom-up poorly. Yeah. A lot of people, I don't know, it's it's sort of like, you ever played the game Would You Rather? Yes. Yeah, so you have like two things and you need to decide between them. If you, if the choice is always really clear, that's not a good Would You Rather. Right. There's no food for thought there. A lot of people, when they're doing world building and they're doing it poorly or in ways that aren't conducive to narrative, they'll just pick something that is not on the face of it that interesting, right? Like when when you are creating your rules for your world, if you're just staring at a blank slate, I mean, usually for me, there's like some nugget of an idea that you're bringing. Like that's the reason that you're sitting in front of a blank slate. You're not just sitting in front of a blank slate because you have no ideas. Yeah, not coming up with enough limitations can make the idea just fall flat. Yeah, and it's limitations and it's conflicts and and things like that. And if you just if you start with uh, something that 
gives too level of a playing field. You can just be adding magic into the world or adding science fiction into the world for no real reason. Right. This kind of goes back to some of the basic principles of rational fiction or writing magic systems, doing magic systems well. The idea is that, like, you know, if you have magic, there should be some resource being expended when you're doing magic. If you have a technology, there should be some limitations on the technology or some, like, level of expertise needed to use it, maybe, or some limitation on the resources needed to construct it or something that makes it so that there's natural conflicts that come about from essentially cheating the rules of the universe. Our universe, that is. Yeah. Like, if you have telekinesis or whatever as a power, that's fine, but it's usually better if you add in something like every time you use your telekinesis, you start to get carbon monoxide poisoning or something, Mm -hmm. right? You immediately have that conflict come up and these decisions that characters need to make, which is more exciting for the reader and usually easier to do for the author, And there are also a number of stories that I think, like, they benefit from a kind of trade-off system where in the world itself there's a potential gain of some new technology or magic that the world then is, that the world has, but it does not have something maybe that would, you could, you could maybe say they should have technologically or whatever that would allow them not to uh, win at everything, I guess, right away. So just as an example, you know, if you're writing a steampunk universe and you've got the magic steampunk machines that can use steam and turn steam into flying dirigibles somehow, usually the guns in a steampunk universe are not modern semi-automatic bullet spewing machines. They're like either blunderbuss, like there's the sword and the, the one-shot pistol or something like that, right? Yeah. Which kind of allows for a old-timey pirate battle between airships because there's a benefit to having limited weapons technology in that world because it allows you to do the pirate theme with flying dirigibles. Yeah, and one of the things that you see in steampunk quite frequently is you see guns, but they're steam-powered and they're complicated, and so there's always like resources that they're consuming, or they're bulky and hard to move around in, or... Mm-hmm. They break down and they need to be fixed in the heat of battle. And all those things are much more interesting than just, you know, firing a machine gun and killing them. Which I think that you can do. Uh, You just need to do it pretty sparingly because having an overpowered stomp through or having two sides that just instantly murder each other as soon as they meet tends not to be very interesting. Kind of depends on genre, but... yeah. I mean, this is also this is also a thing with like okay, so I'm writing a Pokemon fan fiction that obviously tries to do things rationally, and one of the most common questions with any Pokemon fan fiction is how they treat guns, the, the existence of guns, or the lack of existence of guns. And the the rational answer that I have used with mine that I think works okay is just the idea that they haven't explored down that tech tree. They've got this magic tech with the Pokeballs and super advanced computers and stuff, but for whatever reason, they just never got around to the whole, like, projectiles past crossbows. Because in my mind, like, there's a there's a, a cost to weapons, hand-to-hand weapons, or, or any kind of weapons that you use as a trainer, when your alternative is a fire-spewing dragon, right? Like, if, you, if you've got the fire-spewing dragon, you don't really need to develop weapons past the bow and arrow once you, once you have the ability to train them. And in the idea of using both, like, yeah... But that takes your hands, and when you, your hands are used to carry a sword around or even a gun around, that limits your speed, the speed by which you can 
swap one of your Pokemon out for another, or command both Pokemon at once if you're if you have two Pokemon out at once. So there's like an actual there's a cost to using weapons in a world where you have Pokemon, which one allows it to remain recognizable as a Pokemon story, opposed to basically just having guns and and rocket launchers and stuff. Yeah. And also there's the question of like how useful would guns actually be, even if they invented them? Ghost Pokemon, you can just say, are, you know, are mostly unaffected by them. Steel Rock Pokemon, mostly unaffected by them. There's a lot of Pokemon that, like, are really fast, so you're not going to be shooting them with your human eyesight and reflexes very well. So, like, it doesn't solve all your problems. Yeah, I've always found guns to be fairly uninteresting. I, I mean, I've, I've gone to the range and shotguns before but narratively it's like it it's i think it's one of those examples of a of uninteresting world building generally too because, powerful a force yeah it's too powerful for a force it it equalizes people too much and then it everything's over too quickly it's one of the reasons in in hollywood films people get hit by a bullet and then they keep going i was right? just gonna say in video games like there's it's very rare to play a video game where bullets will treat bullet wounds are treated as they actually should be yeah and then I, I guess for for Hollywood they they also go further with it so that as soon as someone is shot they just are dead right. instead of like critically wounded and can shoot back right because that's even less interesting when you like shoot someone in the gut or you shoot someone in a lung or something and they're going to die but they're still shooting back it saps a lot of the drama from it. Some movies like Equilibrium kind of, you know, add in gun kata and things like that that make guns really interesting. Anime can obviously have people running around and moving at such quick speeds and such skilled gunmanship that they can they can make it interesting. Westerns worked out okay just because there was the whole who's the fastest draw and, you know, there was a lot of... The guns themselves weren't as powerful. Yeah. You had six shooters are much less capable of, of mowing down whole groups of people than even a 9mm um today yeah. is jedi and star wars yeah giants with the force and lightsabers can deflect the blaster shots so like if you have guns they're such a powerful force that there has to be something that that allows them not to just overwhelm the uh the setting and this is just for the for the bottom of world building idea of like when you're introducing things into your story and then creating conflicts as a result of them be aware of of that right be aware of the fact that when you're introducing new things into your story they might serve as great things to create conflicts or they might serve as things that make conflicts pointless and the more rational the story is the more you'll you'll kind of explore whether they do or not and it's not just introduce something and then ignore the fact that it should realistically just kind of knock conflicts aside yeah so emergent conflicts i think are almost always better than explicit ones i think even when we're, we're talking about not just like adding rules into the world but if you are creating two opposing forces it's always better for that to come naturally or to come out of the world in a way that appears naturally even if it's even if you're just like okay i need a bad guy right mm -hmm. so long as you can give the appearance of that being just something that comes out of the rules that you've set up for your world and like the nations that you've built it's one of those i was talking to someone on online about dead bad guy it's like well what does that bad guy want and they're like oh, i don't know it's just like a bad guy it's like well you know it, there are values issues and there are ways to build uh, a good antagonist that we've talked about before but yeah if, when you are world building you 
should think about what what people naturally come out of that world. Whether you're doing, you know, science fiction or fantasy or just real world stuff. Like, why are people bad in the real world? And yeah, you don't need to have an answer for that, but you you need to know the types of bad that people can be, and then and then sort of work from that. And I think if you're doing rational fiction, you want to explain it to some extent. Like if you're just doing a, like a crime thriller or something like that, you can have a person who's just insane or has problems or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing it rational, I think that you sort of owe it to your readers to explore why they are that way. Even if the answer is something like lead poisoning or, tragic background or 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 whatever right or, rather, or even rather than trying to answer the question of why are people bad in the real world you can answer the question of why are people perceived as bad in the real world what makes people get labeled bad in the real world what are the actions that they do what are the beliefs that they have and then go with those instead so that you have like the, these two people are enemies because one of them wants to use this energy source for good, and one of them wants to use this energy source for bad. Like, one of them wants to give free energy to everyone, and the other one wants to use it to make a super weapon and destroy the world or hold it hostage or whatever. Like, that's, you know, like, it's serviceable as a plot. It's just not, it's not going to be nearly as interesting to me as a disagreement between people on ways to use the energy source or who to use the energy source for first or like who gets to decide what the energy source is used for like if there's a conflict over like where the energy source was found like whose land it was why there is a a compelling reason to do the unjust decision maybe like you know if there's like hey we can save thousands of people's lives even if we don't necessarily respect the wishes of the people whose land it is or hey this is kind of a you know, this is just feeding into prejudices in the area, and, like, these, these people are already, like, downtrodden, and this is just another example of colonialism or whatever it is. Like, there are plenty of reasons to bring, pe- bring people into conflict with each other without resorting to one is a villain and one is a good guy. Yeah. As far as, like, world building goes, uh, one, uh, for fantasy especially, I think you see it. you see it a lot. You see just, like, two races aren't even competing over resources. They just hate each other, right? Yeah. And it's much better if you have a reason for it, right? Like the the classic elves and dwarves conflict in fantasy is forests versus mines basically. Yeah, but you know, the the elves and dwarves don't really as they're traditionally built, they don't really come into contact that often, right? Cuz the dwarves live beneath the mountains and they do mining and they don't really farm, however that works. Mushrooms. They they eat lots of mushrooms. Yeah. Um, and then the elves live in the forests, right? So so why why would they ever come in conflict? Why would they... I mean, they, they come in conflict because of aspects of their culture, but you need to make sure that that comes across to the reader and isn't just as a function of, oh, elves and dwarves hate each other. Right. right? Because they're different. I yeah. mean, you can do that, but... And if you do go the elves and dwarves hate each other because they're different route, like... Maybe that's how it is now, but like it maybe originated by something much different, right? Like now that's all everyone know, anyone knows because they were born and raised with the elves are evil and dwarves are dirty and whatever it is. But like in the distant past, maybe all the elves didn't live in the forest and all the dwarves lived in the mountains. Maybe they kind of lived in more or less the same areas. And like what we see today is the result of generations of people basically going like, 
look, we're going to avoid outright warfare by just kind of sticking to these certain terrains that we're going to build our civilizations in. And the rest was kind of, you know, seeded to avoid conflict. But what's left is this antagonism because of the, the previous generation's conflicts. Yeah. So do you want to do some homespun examples? Sure. Why don't you start us off? Okay. Um, so people do not have sex to procreate. Instead, at a certain point in their life, they make a decision to split apart and become two entities instead, and each gets half of the memories and skills sort of determined randomly at the, at the time that happens, right? Mm-hmm. That's our that's our only rule that we're going to have. So given that, what does society look like? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is there's no... The, the family looks very different now. Yeah. People can still multiply, right? Society, like, if I understand it correctly, each individual splits into two. Yes. Or they can split into more than two, but, like, each child gets less? Is that how it works? Well, it's one of those rules you'd have to decide on. Right, right. right. So, yeah. So, I I think probably, you know, you can keep splitting, but then you're distributing your mental capacity even further. So, Mm -hmm. you'd be... Like, if if a person splits in two, and then each of the two resulting people gets half the memories, then they both split again, then they each get a fourth of their memories. So, immediately this would be one of our conflicts that we can have, right? Is that there's some people who've decided, okay, I want to make as many copies of me as possible that are going to be distributed. My memories and skills and whatever are going to be distributed across, you know, 16 different people. Mm -hmm. And there are other people who are going to be, oh, well, I just want to be split in half and it's going to be much more ordered. And these two people are going to sit down and they're going to share as much between the two of them, the two people that I become. Right. And you've got also, like, so let's say it takes roughly 20 years for a quarter of a person to become what's essentially another full person that can then split themselves in two and, and not have a problem result in, in like what's substantially lost. There would probably be, especially in the pre-industrial era, a lot of families that would split people into large amounts in order to basically do manual labor because they don't need to do much of anything else. And like, you know, some of them will die to disease or, you know, the things that would normally kill people would, it's it's less of a problem if you only lose one sixth of yourself rather than half of yourself. Yeah. But as society is becoming better at medicine and things like that, there might be more of a focus on conserving the individual and what gets split into two instead of split into six or eight, as might have been done in the past. Yeah. And you get whole, like, cultural conditions. There's, like, a class split going on between those people who are it's kind of a R-selective, K-selective distinction mm-hmm. between the two. But yeah, you, you get a lot of, of conflicts that come out of that and a bunch of natural stories. Like, if if you know that that is the rule that we're working within, you know that our protagonist can be someone who is coming up on his time to split, or as, as his culture dictates. He knows a lot, and he's considered prime, but he doesn't want to, or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or someone just recently came off of a split, but they don't know what happened to the other people and they're short on memories and skills and they're in trouble and they have to sort of hit the ground running and deal with it. Right. If this is, and if this is the kind of world where you can choose which of your split selves get what before you split, this kind of opens a much more, there's a, there's a trope in a lot of stories where like the protagonist wakes up and has no memories, but they have a certain set of skills and the Jason Bourne, I guess is, is the most popular example of this. Like, if you have the ability to decide what your what your split-off person knows and, and is capable of doing, you can kind of 
use them as tools to further goals. Yeah. One of the other interesting features of this of the prompt is that people have much more direct lineage, right? Like yeah. uh, if you have two parents and then uh, four grandparents and eight grand great grandparents, um, instead here you have just one parent and they had one parent and so on. So there are people on other continents who you, you are not related to at all. Right. It, it kind of puts the, the um, genealogy trees on their head and yeah. makes for a lot of different... Like if kingdoms are a thing and like nobility is a thing, it kind of changes that completely because there's no more... There's no more political marriages. You know, there's no more worries about inbred, you know, finding finding suitable mates for your offspring and deciding who's going to be the heir and all that kind of stuff. Although there might still be other kinds of problems in terms of you split twice. Like, because if there's a, the minimum, obviously, is you have to split at least into two. Otherwise, you'd just be reincarnating yourself. Yeah. Then you can have the problem of, like, what happens, who, who gets to rule between the two split people. Yeah. There are a lot of things that you'd have to figure out. The world building is not easy there but i think finding some of the conflicts and then world building toward those conflicts once you've found one that you find really interesting i think that's a lot of what you want to do when you're world building you start with your premise you you add more rules as you realize that they're needed mm -hmm. and then you you try to find an interesting enough conflict that you want to write a story about it right and this is also like all this about bottom-up and top-down storytelling is one of the reasons why fan fiction is easier to write in a lot of senses than original fiction, just because when you're looking for conflicts, as, as we said before, you can take parts of a world that aren't really explored and make conflict out of them that weren't that weren't conflicts in the original story. Yeah. Another idea for a, a homespun story might be like, if you've got a set of... Let's say you've got a set of people who are kind of the concentrated virtues of their of their given village you know back in the days they, there would be a tribal elder and every elder would be considered the leader of the village and able to make all the decisions and things like that but also you know kind of kind of the 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 person that would go to like talks with other villages and stuff like that if in this world there were actual champions instead like you didn't just have a tribal elder who was considered the wisest leader but the person that you could, each person in the village could individually just like give a portion of their strength and intelligence and everything into to kind of make it so that they had a champion in any given situation that they might need one for. That kind of adds a whole new layer to the idea of what warfare looks like in the first place, right? Instead of war being just a matter of, of numbers, having individuals that are themselves incredibly powerful can be... Yeah, either more either more efficient or more dangerous in war. And once kingdoms start consolidating out of all the different tribes, the king might want everyone to make him their champion, but the king themselves might not want to diminish themselves. So maybe they have a separate champion that has like all the strength things, or a advisor that has all the intelligence of the kingdom, or whatever it is. Yeah, and then you have to have rules for like what happens if one of the villagers who's been giving their strength dies, right? right. If it if that strength then goes away, then one of the strategies that you might employ is you go and you find all these, you find the source of the strength, and then you try to kill them all as quickly as possible right. to diminish their champion. And if it doesn't go away, then... You have an accumulation of power from generation to generation. Yeah, which are both like totally different, and totally different conflicts will come out of them. Yeah. Right? 
and they're very different they end up being very different worlds and very different sorts of stories that you would want to tell mm-hmm. and the natural inclination might be to make the hero the protagonist rather one of the champions but it could also be interesting in in the sense of like depending on when, what time period it's set in right if it's medieval it, or a classic fantasy setting that's very different from a modern world where that where that's the case. But figuring out how to deal with either someone who's gone who's someone who has all the power and has gone rogue, if there's no easy way to retract the blessings, I guess, or whatever it is, then like how do you how do how do a group of normal people deal with someone who has that that ability, you know, to essentially just keep keep all the blessings that they're given. Yeah. I think having overpowered antagonists is one of my favorite things to do in a story mm-hmm. is that because there's so much so many more interesting like strategic and tactical choices for an underpowered protagonist right to have to to have to deal with all having this entire deck deck stacked against them but that's that's an an emergent story that comes directly from from this base rule which is the thing that i love about bottom-up world buildings you can find those those stories and then you just I mean, yeah, you obviously need to flush them out a whole lot more to, in order to actually tell them. But right, okay. So that's the basics for bottom-up storytelling. Probably, we'll probably approach world building again at some point in some in some form. Yeah. Next week we're going to be doing something different. We're going to be comparing two bits of media. In this case, Rogue One versus The Force Awakens. If you haven't seen either of the movies, we're going to be going into heavy spoilers on them. So. It's been enough time, I think, on Force Awakens, but if you still haven't seen Rogue One and you're planning on doing so, try to get it done before next week, or just put off listening. That's fine, too. It's not going to be something that we go into for later episodes, so you can just come back to it if you haven't. But yeah, we're going to be going into Force Awakens versus Rogue One, what they, I guess how they score on a rational scale, what they did right and wrong rationally, if that's interesting enough for a conversation. I'm sure we'll have plenty enough to say just on that. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned after the outro music for another book recommendation. My recommendation for this week is a sci-fi book called The Integral Trees by Larry Niven. The central idea is that of a gas torus surrounding a neutron star with no planet. This gives a breathable atmosphere, but only very weak microgravity. All the other features of the world are drawn from that starting point, and that is very typical of Larry Niven's world building. The, the titular trees are 100 kilometers long and tidally locked. A lot of the native creatures have trilateral symmetry to give them the ability to view in all directions and move in all directions. There are globes of water that float freely as a consequence of tidal forces. What Niven did was he started from the solid core idea and extrapolated from there. It's very classic bottom-up world building and the major strength of the book. While there is a plot, much of the path that the plot takes is to showcase the world that has been built around that core idea. So there are a lot of travelogue elements that I find really enjoyable. Um, That's very typical of Niven. He does that in a lot of his books. If you want to start listening to that book now, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial with one book credit to our listeners, which helps to support the show. Go to audible.com rational.